The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. The uh, theme which I'm returning to this evening, after a slight diversion this morning, is forming a Christian conscience. And um, one of the battlegrounds, and we're looking at a battle before the battle tonight uh, in the book of Joshua, one of the battlegrounds is in the issue of polarization. And uh, we might, we're always asking ourselves this question, living in the city, whether you just live there or you're involved in ministry, is, is Christ for the city or is he against the city? Is this Christ's territory, Satan's territory, or a mixed bag? And you ask this question, Christ, is Christ for the city or against the city? And I believe he says neither. He is the Lord of everything and his agenda doesn't fit neatly into one category or the other and we can't polarize those issues when it comes to uh, sharpening our conscience to be ready to encounter people with the gospel and to move into the city the one of the great obstacles that the lord is going to surgically remove with the sword as we'll see is our tendency to enlist god we enlist God in two ways. One is through a self-sovereignty where we have a plan, we have a purpose, we're going to bring it to pass, and we want God to get on board. That's one way we enlist God. Anybody unfamiliar with that here? If you're not a Christian, if you're unfamiliar with that, because that's what we do. We make a plan and we want Jesus to make it happen. And when he doesn't, we're quite frustrated. The second way we do that is by creating polarizations in our relationships and in our world. And in those polarizations... What we do is we want God to take our side, right? You're in a conflict situation, you're not getting, getting along with someone, or you're looking at the culture around you and we're Christians, or you're a Republican looking at the Democrats, or you're a Democrat. No matter what, we have this tendency not only to enlist God to fulfill our plan and purpose, but this tendency to ask God to take our side in our conflicts. I want to suggest to you that what this passage says is Jesus refuses to take sides. He's not on your side. He's not on the other side. The question is, two, quest, two things that we'll see in this passage is Jesus is on Jesus' side. And we don't enlist him. He enlists us. Secondly, he's not on the side of this conflict. Whatever conflict it is or this polarization, he is on the side of reconciliation. He came to bring all things together. So uh, we'll see a resolve of those issues. And I think it's politically significant. I think it's significant in your relationships with people on campus. I think it's significant in, in life in the church. It's enormously significant. It's been one of the passages I've spent a lot of time thinking about. But uh, when we think of polarization, I think in the broader environment of our culture, it's essential to uh, the media to set up two extremes. Uh, they, they, this is the preeminent technique of marketing media, news particularly, is you've got to find two opposed things, two extreme things, two people uh, that are so different that you create an ugly conflict between them, two parties, two whatever. Let them tear each other to shreds, and the resulting barriers of hostility are like corridors of landmines, dissecting and dividing, making the city to be a place at war, dangerous and virtually impassable from one side to the other. It's Capulets and Montagues all over. And that's what, what fuels 
the information uh, media of our culture. So left, right, rich, poor, black, white, west, axis of terror, uh, you know, white uh, America, Arabs, Christians, uh, divided into denominations, Christians set up against liberals, Christians against the gay community, uh, Christians against the needy, Christians and against women. And uh, we ask our side in all of these polarizations, which side is God on? Now, the surprising answer of the gospel is he's on neither side. And what does that mean? It means God is on the side of reconciliation through Christ, and we're ambassadors of a gospel. We don't participate in the polarizations of culture or relationship. Now, I want to just tell you, if you don't think that has implications for life and spirituality, and I would suggest that until you deal with this reality that Jesus says, I'm not on either side, you really can't advance spiritually because you'll always be trying to enlist God to fulfill your plan and purpose or to resolve conflicts by taking your side in small picture or large picture. Okay, let's read the passage from uh, Joshua. And uh, the topic is, whose side is God on? Neither. Uh, When Joshua was near Jericho, this is Joshua 5.13 to 6.2. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place in which you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. So what we have here is what theologians call a Christophany. It's, it is the captain of the Lord's host. It's the angel of the Lord. It is, it is uh, someone who says, you know, uh, jo- Joshua bows down and worships. It's okay to worship. In fact, he says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. You should be worshiping. And then it says, the Lord said to Joshua. So we're told in so many words that basically we have here uh, Christophany, Christ appearing in the flesh. And... Um, So I would like us to think kind of dramatically tonight. And I want you to think of in every battle of life, in every situation that you're in where there is a conflict or a potential conflict, that you and I stand before the sword-drawn Christ. That before Jesus is going to permit you and I to participate in any battle of life, He has business to do with us first. I believe what's going on here is the first battle that has to be fought here is the angel doing battle with Joshua and Israel. And I think he stands between Joshua and Israel. And he's facing Joshua first before he does this. His sword is drawn not only because he's preparing to execute judgment in Jericho, but his sword is drawn to execute justice in Israel. Okay, so as I've said in leading up to this, by the way, this is interactive if you want to ask a question. Uh, Anything you want to, direction you want to take this related to the topic, please. Uh, I'm happy to do that. So the enemy that has to fall 
and it has two sides to it at Jericho, is the tendency to enlist God to our purposes. And I want to just say that idolatry, the first, the second and third commandments are about this. When it says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, in ancient cultures, you used God's name as a formula by which to control the power of the deity and to get it to do your bidding. So name magic and word magic was a big part of the culture. So to take God's name in vain wasn't just a cuss. It might include that, I'm sure. But you're invoking that God in order to have some control by articulating the name. And idolatry is the same thing. Idolatry is localizing God, putting him into a manageable size and form whereby you can manipulate the deity to do your bidding. So you had household gods to guarantee crop success, to guarantee fertility, to guarantee that your kid could steal third base without getting caught. Basically, the whole endeavor of, of uh, idolatry and of name, taking the name in vain is about enlisting God to our purposes. The essence of idolatry is asking God to do our bidding. So this is the enemy that uh, is being faced here in Jericho. And uh, so first, the first way that we enlist God is the ever, and I'm not going to spend as much time on this one, but the ever-present danger of self-sovereignty. Of making a plan and holding on to that plan and no matter what you pray between now and the moment you let go of that plan, all of your prayers are a subtle attempt to manipulate the deity to do your bidding to fulfill your purpose. I want to find a partner while I'm at college. And I'm going to pray for it for four years, which pleases the Lord. I need to find a certain career and a job and to accomplish something. It doesn't really matter what it is. We set a goal and an objective before us. And they're not wrong, but it's so easy for that to become the means by which we enlist God to achieve our own sovereignty. And we're saying, thy will be done. Now, Francis Schaeffer said, you know that you're asking God to get his will, your, his will done when you stand in the center of a circle, 360-degree circle, and you say, Lord, your will be done. I'll go any direction in the compass, north, south, east, or west. Now, when you and I predispose the outcome by, by having a goal or a number of goals in mind, we reduce the circumference or the the angles of that circle, to down, we're down to 1.5 degrees. Lord, thy will be done in this slice of the pizza. You know, I don't do the other slices. Right? And to that degree, we're enlisting God to our self-sovereignty and to our will and our purpose. We talked about that at dinner. Uh, listen to Aaron's story. That's, he's got the perfect testimony for this. And... Uh, he was a miserable failure at the whole thing, too, which was so encouraging to me because I failed at it so much that it was just enheartening. You know, I just love to hear it. <laughs> but he's learned in a wonderful way. But the second danger I want to talk about is about enlisting God in terms of polarizations, the us-them thing. You can see this at the gates of, of Jericho, right? Hey, we're the Israelites. You've read the book. We're the people of God. We're the good guys. They're the pagans. They're burning their kids every second Friday. They're doing all that stuff. We want nothing to do with these guys. You know, we're the good guys. So God help us defeat our enemies. God go before us. 
And uh, the Lord's captain just cuts that down. Whose side are you on? You see, this self-righteousness is the breeding ground of hatred. It's where we will kill these people because we hate them. I was reading a book recently called The Military Science of Shu Lin. I think that's how his name is pronounced. Shu Li. And he says, first rule, you want to kill somebody, you have to hate them. So if you're going to be a good captain, teach your people to hate their opponent. Because if you don't teach it to hate them, they're not going to kill them. So human conflict is always aggression built, uh, uh, causing the enemy to be evil, the axis of terror, the, 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 the uh, sword-wielding Arabs, whatever tribe you take. It's always about demonizing not just the people, not one or two of them, but the whole, if you, the more you can demonize everybody, the better. It helps you in your military conquest. And in a personal relationship, you're not getting along with a girl in your dorm. Well, watch the gossip thing start, man. And it's everyone, she's really quite a nice person, but, you know, have you ever, and it goes on and on and on and on. We've all been a part of it. It's how we enlist God to ourselves. If we can convince ourselves and demonize the other side, then we can say, well, God's on our side because he's on the side of justice and right. Well, this sword cuts this down as the essence of idolatry. God wouldn't be righteous to take sides. In fact, this is not a case of righteous versus sinner. This is a case of sinner versus forgiven sinner. And we turn to the book of Deuteronomy and we read about this. It said, after God has driven the nations out before you, don't say the Lord has brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, is it account of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity you're going to take possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says it again. Understand, it's not because of your righteousness the Lord God is going to give you this land to possess. You see... As human beings, as Presbyterians, as Christians, as Republicans, as those who take sides in issues, we want war to vanquish our enemies. And any time a war is fought to defeat someone, it means there'll be another war close on its heels. That's a vendetta. Vengeance, vendetta, grudge will guarantee that the hostility continues rather than a, whether it's a private conversation or international conflict if the goal is to vanquish your enemy you guarantee there'll be another war but when God fights a war and this is very important in looking at the theology of Joshua uh, is that God is fighting a war to end war this is the last war this is the end of a way of life in order to bring in a new way of life. It's the end of a culture that, that oppresses the Rahabs of our world to free the Rahabs of our world. It's a war to end war and a war that introduces reconciliation to the world. It's always different than a human conflict. And that's why Jesus can never take sides. It would be unjust for him to take our side and it would guarantee the escalation of conflict if he were to take our side. We feed on war. On the other hand, like Luther said, war is God's alien work. He does not delight in it. He only uses it when all other means have been extinguished and utilized. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
no pleasure in these conflicts. It's his alien work. His favorite work is reconciling, bringing peace, mercy, and using gentleness. Why? Because he fought one war to end all wars. And that war was the war on his own son. See, the cross was a, a, a real bloody mess, really, to put it mildly. Said uh, he forgave our sins, he canceled the code against us that stood opposed to us, he nailed it to a cross, having disarmed the principalities and authorities, he triumphed over our enemies at the cross. Now, interesting, he triumphed over our enemies at the cross, and who's getting murdered here? Who's getting nailed? Who's getting their side speared? This, these are pretty aggressive images. It's pretty, you know, this is kind of a battle. It's a military con- conquest going on here. Sin, death, the devil, your enemies and mine defeated in the assault of justice against the Son of God. He expended all the wrath and anger and war that he had in him. God has no heart for war anymore. He expended all of it in the judgment and justice upon his son. And now you and I, where does that leave us? Well, first of all, we've received this reconciliation, right? God's not at war with us anymore. The wrath of God has been removed. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much more, having been reconciled, do we now have peace with God and his salvation? All this wonderful language. The battle's over. There's no, there's no wrath left. And what happens now? Where do, what do we do now that the battle's over? What's our primary business? It's a question. What's our primary business now that the battle's over? Right. To be agents and messengers of reconciliation. That's our only job. Son of man did not come to judge. He came to seek and save the lost. I know there's a lot of fighting to do out there. I know everybody's got to take sides. I know all this stuff is going on. It's just not our job. You're an ambassador. Ambassadors don't get their nose involved in that kind of stuff. Right? We bring the, 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 the olive leaf of reconciliation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 in this. The language is so clear. And I think he has passages like this in mind. He says, you know, he said, Christ's love compels us now. We're convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised again. Okay, that's the reconciliation we have. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly view anymore. We once regarded Christ that way. We don't do that anymore. We're in Christ. We're a new creation. The new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And here's the next part. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. The God we're making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's all that we have to say and do in this world. That's our business. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall see God. As far as it is possible with you, be at peace with everyone. I know that's not easy. Someone this afternoon was saying, you know, what if I disagree with the administration of this fine institution? 
I said, well, good for you. I'm very happy if you have the integrity to face that issue. But if you're like me, the first feeling I have when I disagree with someone is, I'd like to tear out their larynx. I would oh, just you know, crush them. I mean, they're so bad. And what I have found is, if I'm in that particular mood, which I often on, am in a conflict situation, that God says, why don't you take six months to work this out? And this is the sword drawn Christ standing before me, and he says, we are not taking one step forward till your heart is right before me, and you understand your job is to be an ambassador of reconciliation. You don't get to move, because my sword is drawn before you far before I go after this problem. So here you are, here's somebody else is, here's America, here's some other country, here's Georgia and Tennessee playing football, the vol- volunteers and the dogs, and you know, we know the dogs are better, but anyway, here they are. I'm okay with that? No? I'm in Georgia right now, so it's okay. Okay, so here we are in this polarized situation, and I'm saying, God, this person is so unreasonable. My wife is absolutely intolerable. She's so wrong in this. And I've never once in 34 years of marriage found God take my side. I get the neither, every cotton, pea pick, and time. And he see, I stand there in the sword of standing, and he says, he says, I am not for you, John. I'm not for Karen. I am for the reconciliation between you two. The only thing I'm against here is the enmity between you. The enmity between us and God was resolved at the cross. And now, as peacemakers, our mission and our Christian conscience is formed and shaped by God, perhaps more than anything else in the world, is dealing constructively with conflict and learning to be an agent of reconciliation in these difficult situations. And the tendency, it rises like gorge in your throat to enlist God to your hateful purpose to your slander, to your gossip, to your insidious ways of of attacking people of different views, different communities. You know? What do we we call homosexual people? What do we think in our mind? We've allowed the media polarization to make us often hateful to men and women made in the image of God. We've bought into what the propaganda that's, that's trying to incite this war. Faggots, fairies, whatever. Right? God is not against them. You're wrong. And God is not against you. And he's not for you or for you. Yes, he, is, he will deal with justice. I got, really got in trouble when I preached this at one church and the guy was ready to throw tomatoes at me. I'm not saying God's not just. I'm not saying he's not going to deal with sin. I'm not saying anything. I'm talking about something else here. I'm talking about our mission to men. Now, when God brings that change in your conscience, then you'll begin to see that person differently. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus looked at the crowds, which were in a few short days going to take up some big, very big nails, and hammers and have done with him and he looked at the crowds and he said they are harassed they're helpless they're like sheep without a shepherd what i want you to do is not rain down judgment upon capernaum i want you to pray 
the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth workers into the harvest as agents and ambassadors of reconciliation in the world to bring these people back in. It's only the weak Christian with a weak conscience that is so fearful of the evil of the world that they cannot offer love to that non-Christian. It's only the self-righteous person and the person who has tried to enlist God to their purposes that is not able to see past the enmity to God's mission to save that person. So anytime you hear this fierce, macho language of, of, of attacking another community or another person or someone of a different lifestyle, anytime you hear that language, you're looking at a coward. You're looking at a, a, a coward who is waiting for God to do his bidding. A coward and an idolater. I know it's hard when you're radically opposed and you're told to be opposed to someone. But the next time somebody you know or care for uses that kind of language, I hope you have the courage to tell them to shut up. At least if they're a Christian. Even if they're not a Christian, have the courage to tell them to please be quiet. You know, shut up for the Christians, be quiet to the non-Christians. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? Do you see what, what power this would have if we were to do this and, and exercise this kind of approach towards people? Now, you're going to say, okay, how do I do that? Okay, I'm in. I believe it. Jesus died for I got it. Well, how do we do it? Isn't it interesting in this passage that what happens next is worship? Is Joshua bows down and the angel says take your sandals off the place you're standing is holy ground I want to tell you that this is the place where we get the heart of the ambassador now what happens when you bow down and worship first of all don't you renounce your self-sovereignty by definition <laughs> like you're God I'm not number one rule of religion he's God you're not, not got that one you've got half a religion done Okay, so that's the first thing is you renounce your self-sovereignty. The second thing that you do is that you renounce your self-righteousness. I know I'm a sinner. I can't judge this other person. There's nobody worse than me. Here, I know the gospel and I have these hateful thoughts. That person doesn't know the Lord. What do you expect a person who doesn't know the Lord to do? He has an excuse. I don't. We receive the reconciliation, the benediction of God at that point peace child i accept your confession welcome into the joy of your master into the embrace of god the fellowship of the spirit you're renewed in it in your confession now if you if you've just come back from the arms of jesus and in, just think of the best hug you've ever had okay i'm talking about the most affectionate caring loving hug of someone you deeply care for maybe you've been reconciled to or a parent or something just the, and just say I, how would you how do you feel after you get that hug i said mentioned it this morning an old friend that i hugged after seeing haven't seen them for seven years the last time i saw them was at their father's funeral it's really hard to go out and punch somebody in the nose after that it's hard to get ugly you know, Jesus, the king of the universe, just embraced me. I'm a deep, deep sinner. I guess I can embrace you too. You know, I have a friend of mine who 
practiced the gay lifestyle for many years, lied to me like a, like a dog. He just told me all the time he wasn't in trouble. I found out about it. And he's in my church, and this is years ago, and I'm pastoring. And so we're bringing down the hammer. We're bringing down the big guns. We're, we're going to excommunicate him, and then we'll hit him too. You know, We're going to get all kinds of things. You lie to me again. I'm going to punch your lights out. I would, I'd say stuff like that. I was just so mad at him. And uh, uh, afterwards, he moved away from town, and he came. John, and I was a young pastor, and he said, John, I know you tried your best. But uh, I needed the grace of the gospel. And that's how I've recovered. You know, I've found people who accept me. And he said that, that Jesus convinced me that he was with me every time I went to a gay bar. And so the first time I go to the gay bar, I get picked up by someone. And I thought, you know, well, Jesus is with me. I, I can't. Next time he comes, he says, I wouldn't let myself get picked up. The next time he comes, he said, I would just talk to a person. The next time I wouldn't go. The next time I wouldn't get out of the car. The next time I just stayed home. The next time he says, I worked my way back from this lifestyle a step at a time because I was convinced Jesus was with me. And the other thing that Greg told me, and this is, he's very public about his testimony. He's in a recovery group that helps people. Is he said, you know, the one thing that I do remember is you loved me. You hugged me. You weren't, didn't treat me like a leper. You know, if, if Jesus hugs you, there's pretty much nobody you can't hug in this world. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what disease they carry. It's only our self-righteousness that prevents us from embracing anybody. So reconciled, then we can rec be reconciled to someone else. And then now, we're ready to be enlisted in his army. We're ready to be ambassadors. We're ready to plant city-soluble churches that serve their community. We're ready to say, here's my heart, Lord. I offer it to you willingly, promptly, and entirely. Use it where you want. We're ready to follow him. Thanks be to God who's given us the victory through Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happens in Jericho. This isn't about wiping out the Canaanites. It's about God sanctifying and creating a land of rest. Let me read uh, an old hymn. I read this, uh, and I think it really says everything that I can possibly say in this sermon. And it says it so clearly. It says it better. I should have just read it in the first place. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side, who for him will go? By your call of mercy, by your grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. That's what we've enlisted for, brothers and sisters. Let's just have a word of prayer and then some questions. I just wonder if you couldn't take a minute here friends, and just think about someone you've got a mad on about. Maybe they've deeply, deeply hurt you and they really are at fault. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe it's a group of people you hate. And just take a minute here and ask God to forgive you. Accept his reconciliation. Just take a minute here to do that.
a minute to pray for that person, that group of people. Just take a minute to ask God to bless them. We thank you, Father, for the healing that flows from the cross into every area of our life, into our mind, soul, and conscience. And this tonight, especially in this area, telling us, I'm just not on your side, son. I'm just not on your side, daughter. I'm on the side of reconciliation. Now, I want you to be on my side and be an ambassador for me because of the reconciliation I've offered you in my own body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Any thoughts or questions or? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think David um, is uh, in that role speaking the words of Christ and Jesus gets to say those things, not us. I think that's the proper understanding of the Psalms and um, Brian Chappell's done some good work on that, that we hear the voice of Christ in the Psalms. You don't get to, direct, you don't, you don't get to directly apply anything in the Bible to yourself. It's all applied to you through Christ. None of it applies to you immediately and directly. It only applies to us through Jesus. So the imprecations of Christ are, will be in their time. And he, he is the judge of heaven and earth. He, his sword will be used for judgment. But that's entirely his business. It says, remember, all of it says is that as far as it's up to you, you turn the other cheek, you leave judgment up to God. Take no vengeance yourself, leave that up to God. So you, you never get to pray that psalm except for on Christ's behalf at its right time, would be my opinion on that one. Yes. Well, I don't think that we are ever to be opposed to justice. I would just say one thing is it's a lot safer to advocate for someone else than yourself. You know, so if you have a chance to defend someone in a justice situation, you're probably going to be safer than defending yourself, uh, where the ground is a lot slipperier would be one thing. The other thing I'd say is, is, you know, blessed are the peacemakers means you're looking for the, the reconciliation rather. In other words, you'd be suing for peace first in these areas. In other words, if you can win that person over to a better perspective, that would be your objective rather than vanquishing your foes, right? Putting them down. So even how you handle that conflict or that issue of justice, you know, what, what uh, we try to do in, in uh, working with Servants Anonymous is to get governments to bring traffickers to justice, right? And we do want them to be punished and apprehended. And we really want that. Uh, not because we hate the traffickers, but because these women are genuine victims. So that doesn't mean we don't have an agenda of justice in the world. We really do have an agenda of justice. It's just that we don't carry it out as in hatred 
We don't allow the enlisting of God to us. We're, we're, if you see you're, you're defending that other purpose, then you're in God's, enlisted in his cause, right? Not in your own. No. You have to ask God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I, I, I think that reconciliation of all things is where everything's headed, but it doesn't mean there won't be a judgment. Our primary business is to seek reconciliation, but we have to love truth, love justice, and walk humbly with our God. So advocating for someone else would never be done uh, to vanquish, destroy. You know, if you could possibly help those traffickers, you would. The lady who runs this ministry to sexually exploited women uh, always seeks to, to find ways to speak to the pimps and the traffickers. She wants to, they need to be recovered too, but for now, those girls need to be protected. And I think a lot of God's judgment is like that too is that he just doesn't, you know, you know, he puts on his sword when he needs to for his purposes. But uh, in this age, before Christ comes again, it's the age of, of seeking to win as many as possible to him, even as we act, try to carry out justice. You know, we have a public prosecutor in our church, and he, he in our court system, he has to try for justice, right? But he doesn't have to hate that person behind the, the bench, you know, the person in the dock. I guess I would say that. Like I said, I'm not trying to say God is not just or that we don't have to be just. I think we all know that when we're enlisting God to our purposes, something else is going on, though. Even if the cause is good, it's, it's, it's wrong. Right? Okay, good. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Boundaries are essential. Absolutely. We recently confronted someone uh, that we know for inappropriately touching a girl, and we've told them we will not be able to associate with you in any way, shape, or form till you repent. Because we're not going to put our children at risk. We're not going to put our girls at risk. We're not going to do anything to do this. We're not, going to, we're not going to let that happen. And so they're under some kind of ban and you know they are you know so we don't have a choice in that case you need to create safety and for there's so many victims of abuse and molestation today and you know we know the statistics are horrifying and so I would say if a woman needs to reconcile uh, with the person who's abused them that she should only do it in the safest of circumstances and it may never actually end up being face to face but I heard a beautiful thing recently where a young woman who'd been working the streets for and I know her personally worked the streets for a number of years. She's now working in, a, in an organization that works to help sexually exploited women. And um, she um, had the courage a few years ago to confront her father. She's like 40 now, so it's like back from when she was a little girl. For, and and uh, he repented and, and wept with her. And, and uh, it, it, it was the most wonderful experience in her whole life. She never had the courage to even tell him up to that point. And uh, a foolish old man who realized he'd ruined his child's life or almost ruined it, except for God. So, you know, safety, time, those things are very important. Writing a letter is sometimes a way. Yeah, definitely. Take, do, do not put yourself in the, in the fire. For, for example, a lot of people who are abusive are just dangerous, pathological, you know, toxic people. And you're, you're, you're just going to get it back in your face and they're going to deny it. So you need to create safety and distance. You've already gone through, a person has already gone through enough suffering. 
They don't, they don't need to go through anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've gone through a six-month one recently, and I think that I've learned more in that six months. And I, you know, it's like 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 um, uh, Madeleine Dalbrell in northern France in the in the 40s and 50s, always thanking God for the communists. Why? Because they made me realize what a great joy it is to be a Christian and, and how empty life is without Him. Because their conflict has made me search my heart and deal with all this hatred because their antagonism to us has made me be an agent of reconciliation. So the, the beautiful thing is Satan's attacks on you actually make you the kind of person Jesus wants you to be, so you're winning. So this person that you're talking about, if it takes you 10 years to figure out what to do and how to do it, but th this is the Holy Spirit working within you, and that's deep, 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 deep work. You know, the, the river, you know, the, the image in Ezekiel is you step in, it's up to your ankle, then you step in, it's up to your knees, then you step in, it's up to your waist, then finally it's a river you can't cross. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you're doing a lot of gasping for air because Jesus is taking through waters deep way over your head and some of these waters are this hatred envy and malice towards others and if you don't think you have it it's just because you're you're in, in such major psychotic denial that you don't realize it. you've got it you and I have hatred comes out of our heart anger comes out of our heart you might bottle it up and carry it in and it looks like hating yourself or you might be an exploder and you're like a rhino. You know, we're all hedgehogs or rhinos is what they say. You're a hedgehog that keeps it in an underground or you're a rhino that just blasts everybody, you know. But either way, that, that it comes out and it's explosive. And, and you know, you, you say, I've been a Christian for, for 36 years now and I lost my temper with my wife just like the day I be, became a Christian. And you say, what happened? Well, because God is mining deeper waters. It's not that you haven't learned anything is that you had no idea how deep it had to go. And I'm not sure how deep he goes in the life of a believer, but I think our, our challenge is to go as deep as possible. So the sword's facing you first. And you know what? He basically says, don't worry. I know how to deal with the other person you're talking about. I'm dealing with them all the time. Your, your tears for them and blessing that person. And every time you think of someone you hate, praying for their well-being, pretty soon you'll stop hating them. You can't pray for someone very long and hate them very long. It just, your hatred disappears when you pray for them. That's a good question, though, thanks. I don't know the answer specifically. I think you might know when it happens. C.S. Lewis once said something, he said, I woke up this morning and realized I'd been praying for, I, that I'd just forgiven someone I'd been praying for for 32 years. And I think he was talking about his father. So 32 years, that's a long time to have a mat on at somebody. <laughs> We can all go home early. The preceding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.